0: Harvard Divinity School. Religion and the Legacies of Slavery, a series of public online conversations. Religion, Race, and the Double Helix of White Supremacy, February 6th, 2023.
1: Welcome. On behalf of our Dean David Hempton, welcome to our second in a series of six webinars on religion and the legacies of slavery. And this series is co-sponsored by Harvard Divinity School, the Harvard Legacy of Slavery Initiative and HarvardX. I'm Diane Moore and I am the founding faculty director of Religion and Public Life here at Harvard Divinity School. And it's my pleasure and privilege to co-host this series with my friend and colleague, Melissa Wood Bartholomew, Associate Dean for our Office of Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging. On behalf of us both, and our many staff and faculty colleagues who have helped bring this series into being. I wanna welcome the over 1200 participants who are joining us for this presentation, representing over 100 countries worldwide. We're grateful for your presence. Tonight is the second in a series of six critical conversations, building upon and beyond the work of the 2022 Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery report. Last week, Professor Karen King focused on what it means to recognize that Christian scriptures were formed in a social and historical context where slavery was commonplace. Tonight, we'll move into the modern period in a conversation led by Professors David Holland and Catherine Jin Lum on religion, race, and the double helix of white supremacy. In this series, we explore through head and heart what the academic study of religion teaches us about the tangled histories and legacies of slavery and racism here in the United States and beyond. These tragic legacies are alive and present in many forms as the news on any given day in any part of the world devastatingly reveals. We hope that gaining a deeper understanding of the complex roles of religion will enhance our commitments to reparative action and racial justice and healing in our own time and in our own context. Ultimately, these conversations are in service of advancing our vision of a just world at peace healed of racism and oppression.
0: Before we proceed, we pause out of reverence. We pause to acknowledge and honor those who came before us who were indigenous to this land, and the African and indigenous people who were enslaved in this country, including the more than 70 people of African and indigenous descent who were enslaved here at Harvard University as detailed in Harvard in the Legacy of Slavery report. As a descendant of Africans who were enslaved in this country, I am aware of the potential impact of hearing this tragic history. So we want to remind everyone that as we proceed through these difficult conversations and listen to these exchanges, it is important to be aware of what might be stirring up in us and happening in our bodies particularly as we navigate our emotions regarding the current manifestations of the legacy of slavery as reflected in police violence against Black people in this country. Remember to breathe and to take care of yourself during and after each session. We invite you now to take a moment to breathe with intention and to focus on your breath as we lift up the Harvard University Native American program's acknowledgement. of the land and people. We acknowledge that Harvard University is located on the traditional and ancestral land of the Massachusetts, the original inhabitants of what is now known as Boston and Cambridge. We pay respect to the people of of the Massachusetts tribe, past and present, and honor the land itself, which remains sacred to the Massachusetts people. But for the stolen land and the stolen labor, this country and this university would not be. Our acknowledgment of the land and people extends beyond words. It is expressed through our action and is connected to what we are doing through these conversations. This series is a part of the broader work stemming from our school's commitment to reading the Harvard and Legacy of Slavery Report as our common retext this year. And as we engage with this report, we are discerning our institutional actions for redress and ways to support the university in implementing its recommendations and even expanding upon them. And we aim to further our vision of a restorative, anti-racist and anti-oppressive Harvard Divinity School. This is sacred work. Thank
1: you, Melissa. It's my pleasure now to introduce my friend and colleague david holland david holland is the john a bartlett professor of new england church history he has joined he joined the faculty of divinity in 2013 and has distinguished himself as a respected scholar across the university a beloved teacher and a valued and trustworthy colleague for his presentation tonight he is joined by stanford university professor catherine jin lum And their topic is Religion, Race, and the Double Helix of White Supremacy. And I'll turn it over to you, David, to then introduce Professor Lum. And thank you both for being with us. We look forward to the conversation.
2: Thank you so much, Diane. And thank you, Melissa. It's a great privilege to be part of this program. And I'm grateful to everybody who has worked so hard to put it into place, uh, to conceive of it so thoughtfully, and to include me on such an illustrious uh, list of panelists. It's my privilege this evening to be in conversation with Catherine Jin Lum. I think I speak for Catherine in saying we're both honored to be following Professor Karen King, uh, who kicked this important series off last week with an illuminating and really generative discussion of slavery in antiquity and in the sacred texts of the Christian tradition. In a sense, I think we can think of this evening's session as building both chronologically and thematically on Professor King's presentations, as we will move forward in time to discuss the intertwining discourses of religion and race in the intellectual history that informed institutions like Harvard University from early modernity up through the present moment. There are few scholars who could guide us through this material and its implications, as well as Catherine Jin Lum. I've known Catherine for two decades now, going back to an era when she and I were an undergraduate and a graduate student, respectively, in the same history department. I've watched with enormous respect and appreciation since those days, as Professor Jin Lum has assumed a place of prominence and importance as a leading historian of American religion. She's become an essential voice in a number of our field's most pressing conversations, especially around the relationship of religion and race. Catherine Jin Lum received her BA in history from Stanford and her PhD in history from Yale. During her undergraduate year, she also spent some time here at Harvard, and so it is, in a sense, wonderful to welcome her back to where her illustrious journey in higher education began. She now serves as associate professor in the Religious Religious Studies Department at Stanford University, in collaboration with Stanford's Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. She is also associate professor by courtesy of history in affiliation with American Studies and Asian American Studies. As a faculty member, she has twice been awarded Stanford's prestigious Annenberg Faculty Fellowship and the Dean's Award for Distinguished Teaching in the School of Humanities and Sciences. Prior to her appointment at Stanford, Professor Jin Lum was on the Faculty of Religion at Princeton University. I'd like to introduce our conversation tonight by talking in some detail about Catherine's previous work because I think it provides a really valuable um, entry point into the themes for this evening. Catherine's first book, Damnation, and I'll share a few slides here to give everybody a sense of the scope of her work as well as the work of those to whom she is often speaking in her work. Her first book, Damnation, Hell in America from the Revolution to Reconstruction, was published by Oxford University Press in 2014. Based on her award-winning dissertation, the book traces American conceptions and invocations of hell from, late, from the late 18th century to the late 19th. In it, Jin Lum argues against the idea that hellfire was simply a mechanism of social control And here I might note a recurring theme through Catherine's work, and that is a refusal to indulge in the kind of reductionist approaches to religion that tend to reduce uh, faith traditions and religious practice uh, to mere exercises of power or uh, a a way of coping with a world of injustices. Catherine notes that uh, a belief in hell was a deeply Uh, a a deeply um, profound commitment uh, and source of um, uh, cosmological understanding for those who uh, believe deeply in the conception of an underworld. True to her comfort with complexity, she doesn't replace one form of reductionism, that is social control with another theological conviction, but instead she carefully illustrates the ways in which personal conviction, and political concerns intertwined to create a particular culture of hell talk in the United States. Among the many strengths of Jin Lum's book is that she integrates differences of race, class, gender, and region into her work with particular skill. Showing, for instance, how Native Americans invoked concepts of hell against white imperialism or how the concept intertwined with cultural assumptions about womanhood in the 19th century she provides a remarkably inclusive rendering of Americans' engagement with damnation. With this attention to diversity and commitment to the mutual influences of religious conviction and political power, the first book laid a foundation for what was to come. Professor Jin Lum's next major project was her co-edited Oxford Handbook of Religion and Race, which she published with Paul Harvey. The volume opens with an effective editorial essay on the reasons why the history of American religion and the history of race in the United States are more fully understood when studied as an inextricable pairing. Ranging from recent racial violence in American churches to the deep anti-Semitic roots of American anti-blackness, Jin Lum and Paul Harvey show, both through their own writing and the composition of their volume, the religion and race are mutually constitutive categories in American culture. The book, structured both chronologically and thematically, and including groups such as Pacific Islanders and South Asians that are too often marginalized in discussions of American racism and race, evinces the editor's distinctive capacity to bring a disparate set of topics and a diverse set of scholars into a coherent whole. These two books by Katherine Jin Lum bring us to the volume that serves as the centerpiece for this evening's discussion, Heathen, Religion and Race in American History, published in 2022 by Harvard University Press. In order to comment specifically on the contributions of that book, let me say a few words about the scholarly context into which it situates itself. And to do that, I need to comment on one of the historiographical terms that Catherine's book coins, namely the replacement narrative. The replacement narrative suggests that a historical framework, it suggests a historical framework that holds that religious conceptions of human difference were supplanted by biological conceptions of human difference. In this telling, religion provided the structures of thought by which people determined how they were differentiated from the others they encountered in the world. But by virtue of a scientific revolution and an enlightenment that purportedly secularized Western discourse, there was a kind of um, succession of ontological frameworks by which religion faded away and biology and physiology took its place to account for the ways in which human beings are differentiated from one another. This version of history, to quote Catherine's own work, sees religion and race as categorically different. The religious subject is thought to be changeable through conversion, while the race subject is said to be perpetually inferior by the color of their skin. The implication of this narrative, the replacement narrative that Catherine wants to argue against, is that racism is seen as a secular category that can influence religion, but largely functions independently of religion. The legacy or the origins of this um, replacement narrative. Uh, are fairly deeply entrenched in the historiography of American racism, including a, a definitive work by uh, a scholar that Catherine and I both worked with in our student days, George Fredrickson's Racism, A Short History, where it may receive its um, sharpest articulation, but it's appeared in many other works, including Michael Omi and Howard Winant's Racial Formation in the United States, Tanya Maria Golash bozas Race and Racism's um, As well as the complexion of race, um, as well as many others, which we could cite, but it's deeply uh, and it has deeply informed much of the discourse about racism in American history. Now, this replacement narrative, I think, by Catherine's own concession, and she can correct me uh, if um, if she disagrees. Um, but the the um, The implications of the replacement narrative are not wholly mistaken. Uh, I think the idea of an unchangeable physiologically rooted racial difference does come to the fore in the late 18th century and early 19th century. It's not a a complete fabrication to suggest that something like this replacement uh, narrative is in effect, and it does infect areas of learning and research that see themselves as largely secularized in that period, including at places like Harvard, where the famed zoologist Louis Agassiz, which I noted, there's a photograph of him on the flyer for this very event, um, appropriately so, that was not planned. Um, but Louis Agassiz, among others, saw himself as breaking from the legacy of the Bible and Christian tradition by positing that the different races were actually the products of different original progenitors. They called this polygenesis as opposed to the monogenesis of the biblical narrative. This is a theory of polygenesis that tended to reinforce the sense of innate and immutable racial differences and a rigid form of white supremacy that rested upon it. So there are historiological, historiographical and historical truths uh, to this replacement version of history. What scholars like Professor Jin Lum have increasingly objected to, however, is the sense that one, these new biological conceptions of race pushed the older religious views of human difference essentially out of the cultural frame. And two, that modern racism was not deeply affected and by some tellings, fundamentally beholden to the religious cosmologies that preceded it. Rather than seeing religious ideas of human difference as largely disconnected from the newer discourse of biology, This scholarship sees essential religious legacies that remain within the conceptual categories and patterns of cognition that inform the new ways of thinking. Into this category of scholarship, we might place J. Cameron Carter's 2008 book, Race, a Theological Account, which, among other things, argues that the distinction European Christian thought makes between the Jewish Jewish Jesus and the universal Christ one represented by a racialized body that must die before the other's transcendent whiteness can reign, creates a theological foundation on which much modern white supremacy rests. Into this camp, we might also place Willie Jennings' 2011 book, The Christian Imagination, Theology and the Origins of Race, which argues that Christian theology's unholy alliance with European imperialism provided the seedbed of modern racism. Jennings argues, for instance, that when Christianity unmoored itself from the land of Israel, it subsequently claimed the whole world as its promised land, which provided the conceptual foundation for an imperialism that in European hands had to, just, had to be justified by making non-white bodies subjectable to colonial power. Terence Keel's Divine Variations entered the conversation in 2018, To argue that some of the foundational concepts of Christian thinking, such as the idea of a purposeful universe with an intelligent design, gave race an ontological reality and moral meaning that not only shaped but continues to shape even those scientific discussions of race that understand themselves to have left the biblical account of creation far behind. The general sense of such literature is that modern racism is not so disconnected from the religious patterns of thought that preceded it and that the religious aspects and implications of our modern discourse about race have not gone quietly into a secularized night. I should pause here to note that this increasing attention to the role of religion in the creation of race runs on a kind of parallel track to the literature that has addressed the role of religion in the American history of slavery. From Albert Raboteau's landmark 1978 book, Slave Religion, to John McKivigan's 1984 war against pro-slavery religion, to Mark Knowles' 2006 civil war as a theological crisis, to Catherine Gerbner's 2018 Christian slavery. We have seen scholarship that pushes historians to see religion not just as epiphenomenal to the American experience with human enslavement, but as the essential cultural presence shaping the ways the brutalizing system was seen, debated, coped with, and confronted, in the United States and other Western nations. The shared conclusion of this growing surge of scholarship cannot be escaped. To understand American histories of racism and slavery, one must understand this cultural force we call religion. This was underscored, I might note, by the recurring appearance of the divinity school in the Harvard report on the legacy of slavery. That brings me back now to Catherine Jin Lum's 2022 volume, Heathen Religion and Race in American History. In this volume, Jin Lum shows us that a Christian tendency to divide the world into two camps, the Christian and the heathen, has bequeathed to the modern world a kind of binary way of thinking about human difference, captured in a phrase like the West and the rest. Jin Lum summarizes one version of this as follows race works in this conception as a binary us versus them the white and the black the helpers and the helpless the civilized and the heathen Jin lum argues that the supposed mutability inherent in christian conceptions of human difference was sometimes much more resistant to the idea of change than historians have supposed and that even where that mutability is in full effect belief in convertibility can functionally look more like biologically based versions of racial difference in terms of its destructive and subjugating power. This problem is nowhere more vividly illustrated than in the relationship between the history of heathenism and the history of slavery. Because the Harvard Divinity School, situated within Harvard University, exists in an institutional space where persistently religious and ostensibly secularized discourses collide and intersect and intertwine. It is a particular gift to have Professor Jin Lum here with us tonight to discuss this history and its long-lived bestowals as we continue to consider Harvard and the legacy of slavery. Welcome, Catherine.
3: Thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry, <clears throat> I have um, a cold. I have a toddler in preschool, so she brings back all the germs. Um, I hope that you can hear me okay. And thank you for that very kind introduction.
2: Well, you've you've come by your cold, rightly, uh, and uh, you sound great, and it's it's really wonderful to have you here and to see you again. I'd love to get directly to your thoughts on some of the key issues raised in your book, Heathen. As I've indicated, you argue against the idea that American thinking about human difference underwent a fairly stark shift from a difference based on religion to a difference based on biology. Contrary to that narratological axiom that has had such purchase in the historiography of of American religion, you contend that religious ideas about human difference have had a tremendous persistence. In fact, one of the things I really enjoy about your book, historians are often preoccupied with the idea that, that history as a discipline is the study of change over time. We were both acculturated in that idea that what we study is change. Uh, And what your books so powerfully demonstrate is that history is as much about persistence uh, and stasis as it is about change, uh, and that this concept of heathenism is one of those um, uh, examples of the persistent and the static. Now, contrary to to the idea that uh, human difference had this uh, sort of biological shift in the late 18th century, you talk about religion as retaining its place in our discourse about race. Uh, And you um, posit a world in which both frames, the purportedly secularized scientific and the expressly religious, continually interact with each other, an interaction that shapes our often unspoken assumptions when we think about race. So among the implications of those religious ideas is that rather than the more graduated hierarchy of Races, what we sometimes refer to as the stadial view of human progression, which in that sort of enlightenment uh, framework would posit that different races and different cultures were at different places in this kind of ladder of progression on which all human beings are climbing. Uh, That uh, you posit in contrast to a religious discussion of heathenism, which tends to be this binary. Uh, in which hedonism divides the world into simply two parts, those who have internalized the Christian truth and those who have not. Now, when this religious concept, this binary of the world is racialized, which, as you show repeatedly, it often has been, it results in what you call racial clumping, another phrase coined by your book. Now, why do you suppose that it's important for us to recognize this persistent habit of mind? Why do we need to recognize this? binary thinking that the concept of heathenism has bequeathed to our way of thinking about the world.
3: Yeah, well, thank you again. And I actually wanna start um, way back when I was a student uh, in your classes. Um, Thank you for bringing me actually to the field of American religious history in the first place. I did not know that this was something that could be studied academically before I took your classes. Um, So for those of you who don't know, Dr. Holland, as I called you then, um, was one of the advisors uh, for my senior thesis. And that thesis actually planted the seeds of what this book would become. And I don't know if you remember this, David, but I wrote about missions to the Chinese in Gold Rush era, California. And one of the questions that I kept coming back to then was why the Chinese kept being denigrated by the term heathen and what this term encompassed. Um, I remember that I also came across a missionary map when I was researching for my thesis. And this was a map that color coded the world according to religion. And the thing that really stuck with me about that map was that the vast majority of the world was colored gray for heathen. And so that led me to another research question, which was about how Americans could look at vastly different parts of the world and lump them together under the same category. And clearly, I failed to answer those questions in the senior thesis. So I, I kept returning back to them and um, and finally, you know, really kind of face them head on in this book. And so it's really the, the question sparked by that map that I think gets it an answer as to why it's important to recognize this binary view of the world. I think, in contrast to biological racism, right, which tries to, as you as you explained, divide and hierarchize people into a racial ladder um, <clears throat> on the basis of supposed physiological differences. A Christian heathen binary sees much of the world as a kind of mass of unfortunates who need the help of the Christian to save. So here differences are really kind of subsumed under the shared heading of wrong religion, which then becomes the reason for heathens supposed inability to take care of themselves and of their lands. Now, how how is this a racial binary and what makes this racial clumping? Well, here I'm drawing on work by scholars like um, the ones that you named, also Sylvester Johnson, Judith Weisenfeld, and Geraldine Hung, um, among others who argue for understanding religion biopolitically and race non-corporeal, non-corporeally. can't say that word. Um, Johnson, in his book, African American Religions 1500 to 2000, argues that race is, um, as he puts it, a governing formation that has structured the political role of Europeans over non-Europeans. And I think it's exactly this dynamic where one group believes that it has the right and the authority to save and then rule over another that I see as traceable to the Christian heathen binary. And I I want to make clear that you know this binary coexists with the hierarchy, as you as you note, David. <clears throat> and um, I'm not trying to say that it's more important or that it replaces it either. I really like how you use the metaphor of the double helix to frame our conversation, because I think that gets at the intertwining of these modes of racialization. So where where racial hierarchies based on biology emphasize difference, you know, pitting groups against each other in a kind of divide and, and conquer strategy. Um, the binary works to lump people together as simply not white. And so these two modes of racialization are mutually reinforcing, right? For any group that tries to climb too high on a racial ladder, the binary of racial clumping basically works to cast them back into this, you know, mass of unfortunates and to shore up whiteness as a condition of saviorhood and superiority.
2: All right. You, you, among the many phrases, the the resonant and and illuminating phrases that you coined in this book, you coined the phrase the heathen ceiling, to describe that limit um, that the the process of conversion and proselytism, you know, creates this possibility of entering the 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 other side of that binary, but uh, the, the the racialized forms of thinking are so deeply entrenched that that ceiling is. Uh, confronted in a way that has really brutalizing and destructive consequences, uh, which is, again, so, so vividly and poignantly displayed in, in your work. Um, one of the differences you present, you've alluded to it here, is distinguishing the racialized thinking that derives from the religious concept of heathenism from conceptions of biological racism that have often dominated the historical literature on race is that heathenism posits this complex possibility of change. So can you talk a little bit, Catherine, about why uh, a version of difference that allows for some change, however limited, uh, differs from a version of difference in which change is not possible? And why do we need to recognize that dynamic?
3: Yeah, so, you know, I think you really put your finger on the key difference in these systems of racialization in the, the double helix. Biological racism holds that human difference is unchangeable, that it's inherent. Right, But the racism that comes from the Christian heathen divide sees human difference as a result of wrong religious orientation that is supposed to be changeable through conversion. And so because of this, um, some scholars like, like George Fredrickson, as you, you brought up earlier, um, have seen religious intolerance as basically not yet racism. they've argued that racism requires a sense of innate difference. And they've also tended to see then religious intolerance as um, basically gentler than biological racism, right? So they've argued that monogenesis or um, the belief that all humans descend from Adam and Eve had the effect of of basically keeping full-blown biological racism in check. Uh, But that's that's not the perspective that I take in this book. So instead, I, I try to show that it's actually precisely the changeability of the heathen that has justified all manner of colonial impositions and violence. Violence is in the name of helping or saving them, right? The heathen has to be changeable in order for the European colonizer or governor to claim that I am going to go over there and help them. Um, so in my book, I call this the, the get out of jail free um, card or ticket. And I argue that it's rationalized, you know, everything from enslavement, to the takeover of other people's lands, to the separation of children from their families uh, in the name of of Christianizing changeable heathens. And, you know, I should clarify that I'm not trying to argue that saving heathens was the only or even the primary reason for European colonialism. I'm not trying to say that uh, religious motives were more important than greed. Um, But what I what I am saying is that claiming the prerogative to save changeable heathens has allowed Europeans and Euro-Americans to, to essentially give themselves the cover of righteousness for acts that were anything but. And I think that's a powerful thing to recognize.
2: Thank you. Now, um, when when you talk about these religious frameworks as persisting in time, that's that's one of the key contributions of your work. Is that you know this secular way of thinking did not come in and uh, and in a kind of hegemonic way push. These religious frameworks uh, out of the discourse. Uh, this ties into a, 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 a intense and and perhaps intensifying debate in American, in the study of, of religion generally, and in American religious history specifically, about what we mean by secularization uh, and and whether something called secularization even actually occurred. I assume that many in our audience tonight are aware of this debate, but for those that aren't. Um, the the argument is that these secularization theses that became so powerful in in the way people thought about historical change, really from from the mid-20th century on, when they really achieved a kind of explanatory dominance uh, in not just American history, but in in all kinds of historical subfields, is that the secular way of thinking about the world a, a world in which there is no recourse to anything other than um rationality and empiricism um was sort of inevitably taking over uh, and that when it encountered religion it inevitably won uh and that the the world was secularizing and the the western nations were leading this uh leading this charge this theory of secularization uh, really has taken a beating uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is the rise of political expressions of religious devotion around the world uh, that were making headlines in the 1980s and 1990s and, and into today, uh, which seemed to give the lie to the idea that the world was inevitably secularizing and that religion was being pushed out of the public square. Um, all over the world. Um, so that's one sort of critique of, of the secularization thesis. Another critique of the secularization thesis is that uh, the, the version of uh, secularization that it posits looks more like a secularist's dream or fantasy than it looks like uh, something that can be empirically proven by the historical method. Um, and so today, a lot of scholars would argue that secularization is a kind of myth. Uh, and that one of the ways that myth works is that the things that we call the secular, the things that we call secularized ideas are in fact often repackaged uh, modes of of religious thinking. So as you think about your work in relation to these questions of secularization um, and uh, and the secular, um, how do they speak, how does your work speak to that issue? And what does that suggest about, how scholars of religion might be particularly well equipped to engage these modes of thought that we once thought were the the, uh, the appropriate domain of scholars dealing with other secularized sciences.
3: Yeah, thank you for that that big question. Um, <laughs> basically, I, I write in the book that the story I'm telling is not it's not so much one of secularization as it is one of secularism, um, and that's to say that it isn't about the decline of religion, but it's about the changing management, uh, if you will, of what counts as good and bad religion over time. So heatheness has always been a marker of bad religion, but in a kind of ironic twist, the term heathen itself um, becomes itself a marker of bad religion by the early 20th century, right? So this is in large part because of people labeled heathen who push back against the term themselves, who say this is an intolerant concept, Um, So by the early 20th century, using the term becomes a sign of intolerance and closed-mindedness. So it's really only fundamentalists and other Christian conservatives who continue to use the term um, seriously after that. But even though the term itself drops precipitously out of use, I argue that the ideas underlying it do not. So instead, they get transmuted into other secular terms, right? Terms that are acceptable to use in the mainstream, but that signify basically the same things. So, you know, so nowadays most Americans would not use the term "heathen" to describe uh, the parts of the world that they think they need that they think needs saving, but they do use other terms. So terms like "developing world," um, third world." Or in the um, crass terms of the last president, uh, SHIT whole countries, right? These are all terms that have come to take the place that have reoccupied the position of the heathen world. Um, there are also terms in religious discourse that have come to take the place of heathen. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there are definitely still groups that use the term heathen, but most large scale mission organizations now instead use terms like unreached people um, or frontier people living in the 1040 window. <clears throat> So in, in making this um, argument about secularism as the kind of the afterlife of religious ideas that are re- rendered acceptable for wider publics, I'm really indebted to scholars like um, Vincent Lloyd and Jonathan Kahn's book on race and secularism in America, uh, and then especially also to Terrence Keel's book that you put up on the slide earlier, Divine Variations: um, How Christian Thought Became Racial Science. And I think you know, I think Keel's work is an especially good example of how scholars of religion can engage racism interdisciplinarily. Um, he's got a biocritical studies lab at UCLA that brings together scientists and humanists with community leaders. And I think that lab really shows how you know, how scholars of religion can see and help to explain these underlying continuities and patterns that you know help us to see and diagnose the root causes of contemporary problems.
2: Thank you so much. Um, now, your you, this question will take us back maybe half a step to something you alluded to a little bit earlier. But y- your book is both a study of the origins, and I think it's fair to say there's a there's a strong ethical critique that runs through it um, of what we might call white saviorism. Um, and and one of the questions that this sort of critique raises maybe particularly at a place like Harvard Divinity School is how one might contribute to the causes of caring. How does one engage uh, in projects of social justice while avoiding the patterns of paternalism that your book so painfully documents uh, and indicts, quite frankly? And, And does your experience in researching this history give you any kind of purchase on how to deal with that dilemma?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a really hard one, right? Because even as our research can help us to diagnose root causes, you know, where do we go from there? What do we do with that? Um, you probably don't remember this, but when I was an undergrad in your class, I wrote a review for a book that basically blamed Christianity itself for racism. This was um, Forest Wood's, <clears throat> I think the title of it's The Arrogance of Faith. Uh, And, you know, an argument like that, that just blames Christianity for racism, kind of implies a pretty simple solution, abandon Christianity because it's racist. And I remember being very frustrated by that book as a a Christian who is not white, because I didn't think that either the history or the solution was so straightforward. And, you know, I think some people want my book to offer the same kind of ethical and theological judgments, but... That's not what I'm after, right? I did not write this book to indict Christianity because there are many Christianities, Uh, and what I'm interested in is how humans have interpreted and carried out what they believe to be its most important precepts. Humans have done things that are justice-oriented and things that are absolutely appalling in the name of Christianity. Um, and Christian ideas, as we've just discussed, can be consumed into the secular sphere, so that people might not even recognize when they're doing things that stem from a Christian heritage. So it's it's really not easy to say what we do with this. But I will admit that you know pretty much every time I give a talk about my book, almost without fail, I have undergrads in particular who come up to me and ask me just that question. And and many of them are interested in humanitarian work to the so-called developing world. <clears throat> and I write in the book that. I do not want to throw cold water on their enthusiasm, you know, nor do I think that I am in any kind of morally superior position just by being an academic who's researching this history. Um, I also think that there's a difference, an important difference, as scholars of humanitarianism have noted, um, between emergency assistance and interventions that try to change the way that people live. So on the one hand, you know, of course, sending aid in the wake of catastrophic and devastating events like... Um, like the earthquake in Turkey and Syria is the right thing to do, but that is that's different from, as an example, you know, high schoolers taking a one-week mission trip to somewhere in the developing world that is as much about cultivating their own sense of gratitude and helpfulness as it is about fighting inequality, right? Because if anything, trips like that can perpetuate inequalities because of the very paternalistic patterns um, that you brought up in your question. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess what I love the book to do is to spur questions and conversations because I don't think there are easy answers. So maybe that is just part of the point, you know, not resting in the easy answers, asking why we want to do what we're doing um, and to, yeah, to what ends. I mean, I, I love to hear what you think also.
2: I think your goal of, uh, of generating questions and conversations uh, is clearly met uh, by the book and its reception. Uh, and I appreciate the way that you frame that as uh, the scholar's role in providing space for critical thinking um, as we all think about our place in the world and the contributions that we can make to it. Uh, it Certainly, it's done that for me as the reader of it. Um, one of the things that I appreciate most about uh, about your work, and I think this is true actually throughout all of your work, it's kind of one of your hallmarks. Uh, is that you, you demonstrate the agentive work of those who are often harmed or marginalized by these conceptual frameworks as they repurpose them for their own objectives uh, and can use some of this uh, in the pursuit of a recognition of their own humanity uh, and dignity. As you think about the complex ways in which the category of heathen have been used, you think about the ways in which those who were subjugated by it repurpose it for their own objectives, what stands out to you as a a kind of particularly interesting part of that complexity to the story?
3: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think that was my favorite part of the research, right? Finding how people labeled as heathen have engaged with the term. I mean, I think especially because this is part of my own history too. You know, again, I come from people historically considered heathen who were Christianized by missionaries. Um, So there's there's really a range of possibilities in how people have responded to being labeled with that term, right? Some people who converted to Christianity pretty much um, accepted and adopted the term and used it to refer to their former unconverted selves uh, and to friends, family members, and ancestors who did not adopt Christianity, and some of them even became missionaries themselves. So that's kind of one end of the range. Um, At the other end are people who rejected Christianity and actually end up adopting the term heathen kind of as a a badge of resistance, right, a badge of honor against um, Christianity. So one of my favorite examples of this is a Chinese immigrant from the late 19th century uh, named Wang Chin Fu. He went around the country, traveled the country as a self-described Confucian missionary, um, basically saying that he preferred being a heathen to a hypocritical Christian, uh, and then urging Americans to come to Confucius. Um, <clears throat> and then I guess at the, the middle of the range are people who might have converted to Christianity, but who did so you know, with clear eyes, who were very well aware of white racism and hypocrisy. And so these people believed that Christianity was not what white people made of it. And they fought back against the white co-option of Christianity by calling white Americans Heathens themselves, right? Like turning the turning the phrase back on white Americans, and um, basically indicting them for worshiping their own idols, right? All sorts of idols, from you know money to their own whiteness, uh, and destroying the land and harming people as a result.
2: The that answer, Catherine, underscores another characteristic feature of, of your work, which is I as I mentioned earlier, your sensitivity to persistence of ideas and concepts even as you recognize the perpetual reality of change so in that answer you indicate that the category of heathen persists but its uses can be actually completely inverted and there there are powerful changes taking place in that discourse Um, when you think about uh, your attentiveness to this give and take between the things that change and this things that sort of stubbornly hold on uh, I'm wondering how you think about that in relation to this question about whether things are getting better or things are uh, or not. You know're we're, 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 I think as historians, we're constantly sort of on the horns of this dilemma uh, that if you demonstrate the ways in which the world changes for the better, that you're undermining the, the moral bite of the critique. Uh, or if you emphasize the ways in which things don't change, that you demoralize, you know the the, the process of engagement. Uh, and uh, this is sort of a, a, a personal question, probably a unfair Definitely. one or a, a selfish question. one, but beca- because you are for <laughs> me sort of exemplary of a of a sensitive scholar who understands that some things change and some things don't, and and these things are in constant complicated relation to one another. Um, How do you approach that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't have a good answer for that. It feels like it changes for me, you know, based on, like I fully admit that I am influenced by what's happening in the present. I am presentist in that way, right? And it changes for me based on what's happening in the present, absolutely. And so, you know, in writing this book, I was was finishing it when the COVID pandemic started. And so even if I might've felt one way while I was writing most of the book, you know, to be finishing it in that climate, particularly in a climate of you know, anti-Asian hostility. Um, it was, yeah, I, I titled my epilogue, I think I titled it, the more things change. And the last line of the book was going to be the more things change, the more they stay the same. But um, I was told that was too cliched. So I just came up with some paraphrase for it. But yeah, it's, that's a really, that's a really tough one. So I think it just, it changes for me as I, as I write and engage with the world that we're in.
2: What I love about your work, Catherine, is I think that we're at our best intellectually uh, and and as people concerned with civic enge- engagement, when we live in the tension of those two realities, that change is possible, but some kind of naive triumphalist narrative of progress is counterproductive. Uh, and when work like yours reminds us of the intransigence of these structures of injustice and oppression, uh, that we exist among and also that um, that that change is a perpetual reality and that human beings have been the agents of change for good and ill um when we live in in the tension in the kind of we're, we're caught at the convergence of those competing truths uh but a book like yours helps us illuminate that element of the human, condition and both tempers us when we get sort of naively triumphalist uh and also encourages us when we get discouraged and um and i appreciate a a work of history that's attentive to that complexity that allows us to you know position ourselves in relation to those two two realities that we deal with
3: i appreciate that very much
2: so this is sort of maybe a, a good place to segue to the particular questions of slavery and its relationship to the persistent institutions of American life, including a place like Harvard University, which is really the, the context in which these series of conversations are, are playing out. Um, the, the, the report, that all of us have read and agonized over and tried to make sense of and and thought about our own current institutional realities in relation to, does exactly what uh, what your work does, which is to remind us of just how deeply entrenched these legacies of white supremacy have been and continue to be, and also that history is never fully static, uh, that we are part of Uh, the process of change and we have the choice to determine the course of this institution just as those who came before it before us uh determined the course of it in previous generations in ways that we now lament or in a few occasions wish were were more influential than they were so um maybe we can kind of shift to think about the particular issue of American slavery and how it relates to your work and, and then think about some of the institutional legacies that we live with. Slavery comes up recurrently in your book and that is to be expected. There would be no way to address the topic without a, a prominent place for for slavery. I was struck that when you, for instance, when you address Spanish colonization, you you very thoughtfully uh, engage a variety of um, implications for the concept of heathen for what that uh, Western Hemisphere slavery looked like. There was a tense debate between those like Sepulveda who believed that the concept of heathenism as as applied to indigenous Americans justified a really harsh um, and brutalizing form of colonial control as uh, expressed in systems of enslavement. And to use your phrase, the demon or Sepulveda's phrase that you, uh, you skillfully employ to kind of illustrate his position, the demon of heathenism required a kind of forceful suppression and slavery was uh, a means to that end. You contrast that to people like Bartolome de las Casas, who believed that the idea that heathenism actually should limit that brutalizing colonial approach because conversion was possible because that change that we've been talking about was intrinsic uh, to native souls uh, and you point out in your discussion that this debate about the enslavement of indigenous americans has implications for the ways in which uh, american colonizers uh, address the question of african slavery could you speak for a minute about those two different versions of the kind of heat and conception and what th- what that means for american slavery
3: Yeah. So <clears throat> long before um, Sepulveda and Las Casas were engaging with these questions in the in the 16th century, you know, European theologians were debating whether whether heathens were basically innocents who lacked access to the gospel but who had some access to the truth, um, or whether they were basically demonic and guilty, you know, reprobates who needed to be harshly dealt with. Um, so those who argued that heathens were demonic and guilty justified their position by Um, By looking to the Israelites' treatment of the Canaanites in the Bible, right, where enslavement and extermination were were supposed to be just punishment for their idolatry. And those who saw heathens as innocents, on the other hand, took a more kind of New Testament um, outlook, kind of missionizing outlook based in the Great Commission to go into the world and make disciples of all nations, So so Hines de Sepulveda basically takes that first position and he adds to it uh, an Aristotelian spin. So Aristotle believed that some humans were, um, were in his view, naturally inferior and needed the uh, help of superior humans to basically become less, quote unquote, um, barbarous. So for Aristotle, these inferior humans were natural slaves and their enslavement was just because they could not be trusted to fend for themselves. So Sepulveda argues that that indigenous Americans basically fit into Aristotle's framework of natural slaves. He said that they could and that they should be enslaved because they were, in his words, um, impious servants of the devil, and that enslavement could convert them to becoming believers in the true God, and that's also his words. Now, he made these claims without spending any time in the Americas. Bartolome de las Casas, on the other hand, Um, witnessed and actually participated in horrific violences against Native populations in the Caribbean. So his experience um, led him to take the opposite stance from Sepulveda. So instead of seeing Native people as devil worshipers, he described them as gentle lambs, you know, basically innocents who were only heathens because they'd never been exposed to the gospel. So for Las Casas, Native people needed, you know, gentle missionizing and not violent enslavement. But Las Casas then made a move that was consequential for the development of slavery in the Americas. So even as he defended Native people against enslavement, he argued for the enslavement of African people to meet the labor needs of of the colonists. So African people were also held to be unbelievers who could be rightfully enslaved. Um, But for Las Casas and for others, there was a key difference between African and Indigenous Americans, and that was in their ability or their inability to claim um, limpieza de sangre or purity of blood. So here I'm really drawing on the work of um, Maria Elena Martinez in um, genealogical fictions, and she she also has an article on this called The Black Blood of New Spain. Um, So limpieza de sangre was a system that emerged from the Spanish Inquisition's attempts to basically force out Jews and Muslims and Jewish and Muslim practices from Spain. So in order to claim blood purity, there could be no Jews or Muslims in people's um, ancestry as far back as they could trace. So because because African people came from a, you know, quote unquote, old world context and had been exposed to and sometimes converted to Islam, they could not claim limpieza de sangre in the way that uh, native people in the Americas could, who had no prior exposure to Judaism or Islam. Um, and so they could and they did sometimes try to claim Limpieza, as did their descendants. And so this is an important context for understanding how someone like Las Casas could argue against uh, the enslavement of indigenous people, but then argue for the enslavement of African people in the Americas. Now, of course, you know, this, this isn't to say that enslavement of indigenous people disappeared in the Americas, because it, it clearly did not. You know, others also take up Sepulveda's position later on, um, including people in um, you know, New England, you know, as, as Jorge Cañazares Azcara has described in his book, Puritan Conquistadors, there's actually a lot of similarities between the ways that English and Spanish colonization projects, um, you know, transpire.
2: Thank you. Uh, that's a really helpful uh, answer in relation to, you know, your overarching argument of this binary, which posits, you know, a world of heathen and a world of Christians, in a world that by empirical evidence, Europeans have to recognize is much more complex than that binary allows for. Uh, and the ways in which that internal discourse of heathenism makes allowance for that diversity and the reality that histories of, uh, of slavery uh, have their own distinctive um, trajectory and reality uh, based on the ways in which that system of thought categorized the particular populations that were under colonial oppression. Um, so, you know, it would have been easy for your book to simply rest um, kind of confidently in that binary framework, but you demonstrate the complexity that swirls beneath it, the reality of human diversity uh, that the colonizers had to deal with, whether they wanted to or not, and the brutalizing consequences of some of the choices they made in response to them.
3: Yeah, it's a very elastic and flexible category that, and that's why, you know, come up with this, came up with this idea of the, the get out of jail free card, that it can be used to accommodate different kinds of circumstances.
2: Mm-hmm. Which which helps account for its persistence, right? It, it is elastic enough to meet the, the evolving needs of a colonial project, and therefore its usefulness remains, even as, you know, other modes of knowledge evolve. Right so it might be helpful for our our audience uh, i, I, I presume that there could be questions uh, you know and then maybe this gets back to your heathen ceiling you know uh, image uh but if heathenism is this important force in driving systems of enslavement how do you handle conversion and retain slavery and what are the implications of, of that elasticity and allowing systems of enslavement to persist even as Christianization has its own history in relation to it.
3: Right. Yeah, that's such an important question. And I want to re-highlight um, Catherine Gerbner's book on Christian slavery that you mentioned earlier, um, which is really devoted to answering um, you know, exactly this, this problem. So so initially, as as Gerbner has shown, Anglo-Protestants excluded enslaved people from Christian evangelization and from church membership, right? Because they believed that Christians um, could not and should not be enslaved, so they wanted to keep enslaved people heathen as a rationale for continuing to hold them under slavery. <clears throat> so this changes for several reasons, and I, the first to highlight is the agency of enslaved people themselves. Right? Enslaved people were interested in Christianity on their own terms, uh, and they interpreted scripture differently from white enslavers. They, you know, they sought to practice and to participate in Protestant rituals like baptism and the Lord's supper, um, as as Gerbner shows. And then another reason for the shift is the arrival of um, of missionaries, right? Of Quaker, Moravian, and Anglican missionaries in the Anglo-Protestant colonies, who um, who basically start to articulate what Gerbner calls a um, a rationale for Christian slavery, right? A justification for slavery as a Christianizing institution. So what they do is they try to reassure enslavers that. Christianizing enslaved people will actually make them better laborers rather than requiring their manumission, and so this this justification then gets picked up by later apologists of enslavement in the 19th century, like uh, like the minister Charles Colcock Jones. <clears throat> right, so Jones argues that slavery was designed by God to teach enslaved heathens Christianity, and then Jones, you know, basically. Um, articulates an understanding of Christian slavery where it is necessary for enslavers to paternalistically maintain enslaved people in the faith instead of freeing them once they were baptized. So here's where that heathen ceiling comes into into play. It's not that conversion just suddenly makes the heathen into the Christian. It's that, well, you know, these people who have been historically heathen for so long, we cannot expect that Christianization would so quickly, you know, make them able to traverse that ceiling. And so it's going to take a long time to instruct them in all of these ways. And so this is um, this paternalistic defense of enslavement as a Christian institution, right? For Jones, slavery itself basically ends up baptized as a Christian institution. Um, of course, enslaved people knew and showed this to be an absolute lie, right? So as we as we discussed earlier, those who have been labeled heathen flipped the term around, and um, this was very much the case in arguments against slavery. So, um, so David Walker, a Boston abolitionist uh, who was born in North Carolina to a free mother and an enslaved father, um, says that it's white Americans who are heathens or actually worse than heathens because they're practicing a form of slavery that's infinitely worse than that found in the Bible. Um, and Frederick Douglass you know, just absolutely scoffs at the idea that slavery is a Christian and a Christianizing institution, right He says, you know how can how can white Christians?" spend loads of money on the so-called heathen overseas while neglecting what he calls the heathen at their own doors. Right? So yeah, it's again this <clears throat> interesting ways in which this term can be um, used back and forth.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, we do want to uh, reserve time for questions from, from the audience, but maybe if we can just fit in one final question uh, for you, Catherine, that gets us to a uh, Harvard-specific context. Uh, I noted that Harvard University appears a few different places uh, in the book. Uh, In the early period, for instance, uh, you have the Harvard-trained minister, Nicholas Noyes, uh, who takes it upon himself to defend the convertibility, the malleability of Native American souls against uh, his uh, kind of European counterparts, other observers who were skeptical. Uh, of the proselytizing project in uh, in the New England colonies you also know William Ernest Hawking uh who was a Harvard anthropologist in the 1930s who compiled the landmark report titled Rethinking Missions and this is this really speaks directly to your point about how the the term changes and becomes a a marker of bad religion uh in the early 20th century uh you see Hawking his work at Harvard as uh, a marker of the process by which the language of heathenism lost its currency in academic discourse. Remarkably, though, I, it, if I've got my timing right, you can correct me if I, if I didn't get this right, but I think it's a decade later, a decade after Hawking sort of demonstrates the way in which the concept of heathenism is losing its academic respectability, uh, when there's another Harvard anthropologist, William White Howells, who publishes a book of comparative religion titled The Heathens, Primitive Man and His Religions. Now, I wasn't quite sure if he was doing that somewhat ironically or not, but regardless, uh, the title is the title, and that book was reprinted with that title as late as 1986, which is one of the more remarkable um, bits of information from that portion of the book. Now, Howell was the curator of Harvard's Peabody Museum for many years, and you may or may not be aware, Catherine, that here at Harvard we're in the middle of uh, a soul-searching reckoning with the practices of the Peabody Museum, uh, including uh, the recognition that tens of thousands of human bodies uh, are uh, in the possession of the museum. And uh, as a community, we're wrestling with uh, the pain of that recognition and the moral and ethical responsibilities that come with it. Uh, for how we might pursue some redress for the terrible injustices and violence uh, that uh, that this institution has been complicit in. And so how- uh, Howell's role as curator of that museum and the fact that he used some of these human re- remains to make an argument for relative human equality underscores the complexity of this history that we're dealing with. Um, you know that his book, titled the heathens um demonstrates a legacy of thinking about heathenism that is not as progressed or advanced as even he believed it to be at the time that it retains many of these persistent older ways of thinking you quote a passage that reads as follows and then I'll, i'll conclude my question with this and allow you to speak before we transition to the audience questions Uh, Howes writes, the anthropologist's first duty is toward unliterate people who are unable to keep their own history and thus hoist themselves up into the realm of self-criticism. Anthropology must do this for them. This is the academic version of the white saviorism that uh, runs throughout your book. You see in a passage like this a continuing sense of white Christian supremacy. Can you just, in conclusion here, elaborate on how that sense of religious superiority continued to affect religious studies discourse? as in the case of Howells, or anthropological discourse in the case of Howells, long after academic fields like his and institutions like Harvard had purportedly left this discourse behind.
3: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's not just religious studies and anthropology, but history too, right? It's like, um, as, I, as I argue in this book, and also in a spinoff article, heathens were thought to be people who never developed in history because they supposedly wasted their time worshiping false gods and nature. Uh, instead of creating new technologies to domesticate it. Um, and so they were thought to be incapable of keeping their own history, which is what that um, quote from Howells alludes to. Um, so yeah, but in the last chapter of my book, I also discuss um, several scholars who offer counterscripts to religious studies and to Western sciences treatment of other than Christian people. Um, so I, I talk about Charles Long and Vine Deloria, um, Long in Significations, and Deloria in God is Red, who both criticize the um, rational Western intellectual tradition, as Long puts it, for blinding us to an adequate appreciation of the diversity of the human, right? So Deloria um, indicts Western religious thinkers and Western science for rejecting a priori many thoughtful and useful systems of belief of ancient people. So basically, you know, as we've seen the development of these disciplines, African and indigenous American epistemologies have long been silenced and ignored, Uh, their histories have been sidelined as myth, right? But thankfully, I think this is changing, although I think still the lack of Indigenous Studies and Africana Studies positions in many religious studies departments um, is telling of the ways that the discipline still needs to evolve.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, let's, Let's turn to our audience then, and I think Diane and Melissa will help moderate that part of the conversation.
1: We will, and there are lots of good questions here. I, I think we want to just jump in quickly to just maybe follow up with a few of the many incredibly rich threads that you all both have woven here in this conversation. I want to just I, I want to pick up on what you just just were speaking about, Catherine and David, uh, relevant relevant to the to the study of religion itself, which is indicted in all of these. All of these questions, and that's what your your articulation has has made really prominent. But not not exclusively Christianity, but the way that the study of religion itself evolved. So so part of my question then is relevant to uh, what you were just talking about. How what are the particular gifts relevant to the study of religion, different than anthropology, different than uh, if if you think there are then history that can not only just illuminate the power of the binary that religion at Christianity particularly has been so uh, powerfully uh, indicted in constructing, but is there anything in the study of religion that can help us d- uh, deconstruct that binary relevant to the complexities of what it means to really move beyond the binaries themselves of, of oppressed and oppressor, which is another dimension of what you've uh, illuminated here so
2: so beautifully.
3: Yeah, I don't want to be the one answering all the questions. I don't know, David, if you want to jump in first, maybe. uh...
2: Well, I'd I'd love to hear from you, but I will just offer maybe a a provisional answer to that, which is uh, that um, religious studies is, I think, of all the humanistic disciplines, the most self-reflective about the genealogies it has inherited as its structures of uh, about of investigation and uh and um analysis. So uh I mean and this sometimes is is a source of some navel gazing and preoccupation with our own with our mm-hmm. own disciplinary histories. But what it does is it provides a kind of language of uh critique that perpetually invites us to analyze our disciplinary inheritances. I think about, you know, a book like uh, Tomoko Masazawa's The Invention of World Religions, and the ability to look at that religious studies discourse as an instrument of coloniality, Um, and we have, I think, developed a discursive capacity uh, to bring our own assumptions into the hard light of day. Now, it's the assumptions you don't notice that are the dangerous ones. Uh, so this is an ongoing project and, uh, and you know we always run the risk of becoming self-satisfied with wherever we are in that process. But I think as a discipline, we're particularly attuned to the necessity of that process. Uh, and I think Catherine's book is illustrative of it. You know, when it concludes with somebody like Howells, who uh, thinks he's advancing the sort of um, self-awareness of the discipline and, in fact, is still harboring so much of that previous pattern of thought that he was advocating against, uh, this is the kind of disciplinary um, habit that I think we are especially attuned to. And and I think that gives religious studies um, a kind of um, experience and habit of mind that is really useful for engaging the the very sorts of um, bestowals that that Catherine's book um, highlights.
3: So I agree with that. And I'll just add, um, not about my book, but about the discipline. (laughs) Thank you, David. Um, I would just add to that, that I think that um, for me, religious studies, I was was trained as a historian all the way through, actually, all of my degrees are in history. Um, But what's been really freeing and exciting for me about religious studies is the ways that, you know, some people in the discipline are asking these really hard normative questions and, you know, trying to think about how to answer them interdisciplinarily. Um, I you know, in my book, I don't, I don't really do that. The book is primarily a history, but you know, a book like um, Willie James Jennings's *The Christian Imagination* is not just a history, but it's also um, political theology in a sense, right? It's, it's offering um, ways forward. And I have increasingly been um, in conversation with political theologians. You know, I'm, I'm actually working on a, on an initiative with Vincent Lloyd, um, who I mentioned earlier, called *Across the Normative Divide*, where. Um, theologians and ethicists who are thinking about issues of religion, race, and justice, and historians who are doing the same are trying to talk to each other and figure out exactly how we can address these kinds of questions that you raised.
2: You know, Diane, if I could just follow up on that, uh, since Catherine a little bit earlier referenced um, Terence Keel's work, I mean, one of the points that Terence Keel makes is that racism is a system of belief uh and it persists in much the same ways that systems of belief that we recognize as religious persist uh and so the tools by which we analyze these systems of belief are applicable to the very sources of white supremacy these kind of um dogged retentions of uh notions of human hierarchy that fly in the face of scientific evidence um they they are subject to the very tools that have been sharpened to address uh other forms of belief uh that that constitute the subject matter of religious studies
1: great thank you thank you excellent
0: i'm just so um appreciative david uh of you and katherine for this conversation and i have a question that that it alludes to what you covered earlier and it it does not it's not a question that, that, that has an easy answer but i want to just I want us to grapple with it together, and it's the understanding of the reality that um, these ideas persist. You know, Catherine, we talked about the fact that heathen is a term that you know, without a vogue, and then just you know, we continue to you know, um, they morph into other ter- other terms that just speak to the same underlying you know ideas and, and beliefs. And David, you mentioned just you know uh, not too long ago about the, the pattern, the habit, the habit of thought. So my question is, as as students of religion, as scholars of religion, as ministers, um, you know, Professor King last week reminded us of accountability, and we are to be we are accountable to this history. So my question is, how do we get from up under these ideas? How do we how do we break these patterns of thought? I mean, how do we? Because the reality is these ideas, these beliefs are embedded within our culture and actually are embedded within us and embedded within our in our psyche. So, how do we get up from under the weight of these ideas and these beliefs? Because if we don't, we're going to be here 50 years from now, or another group of scholars will be here 50 years from now talking about the same thing, but there'll be a different frame that we'll be talking about. And then, Catherine, you know, I, I love the fact that you highlight um, the, uh, what did you say, the, the oh, the, the demon, the demon of heathenism. He, we got to address the demon. How do we address the demon? How do we address the demon? And then the last thing you said before we transitioned to the questions, what you, you started talking about, you referenced Charles Long and Von DeLoya and the importance of attention to African and indigenous epistemologies. Um, and I think that that's like an entry point for us to consider um, as a response to how we actually get to the, the heart of the matter and 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 break these these vicious cycles of thought.
3: Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's exactly right. I mean I think that um the first thing to do to break these patterns of thought is to recognize them, right? To expose them, to understand them for what they are and 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 where they came from. Um, but then but then yeah the, the last chapter of my book is called counterscripts and it is exactly about people who are trying to generate these counterscripts who are trying to identify and to, to push back against these patterns. So Long, Deloria, um, Sylvester Johnson, also whom I mentioned both as kind of a scholar who's informed my work, but also uh, in this chapter um, becomes almost a, a kind of a source that I'm thinking with as well, uh, particularly in his first book, The Myth of Ham, um, where he you know articulates a you know a sense of, of writing from the underside of history and identifying with the Canaanites right because I think for for so long in American history there's you know this identification with the Israelites right um on from for multiple groups and so so Johnson encourages us to think about how we might see these histories from different angles how we might break the patterns by doing that
2: in some ways it speaks directly Melissa to to Catherine's um comment about you know how religious studies and maybe particularly a divinity school uh, differs from other academic disciplines like history like Catherine all my degrees are in history Uh, we share that in common Um, and I would say that most academic disciplines including religious studies are a lot better at diagnosis than they are at prescription Um, They're primarily it's the nature of the Western Academy to to sharpen these diagnostic tools, Uh, but but we tend to kind of lose our footing uh, when we begin to prescribe solutions, Um, and I think some to some degree, there is value in recognizing the limits of the traditional academic disciplines as prescriptive instruments mm-hmm. um that, that that we have a kind of division of labor here and part of what we do uh, in the academy is to diagnose to name to expose to do the things that Catherine's book does so well but part of that can also be even if we ourselves don't feel particularly well equipped to propose um solutions to these deeply embedded problems We can, as Catherine's final chapter does, provide space for those who do and for the wide array of human endeavor that is prescriptive rather than diagnostic. Uh, And so we provide the tools, the diagnostic tools, by which those who are envisioning new futures can address what they've inherited and move on to something better. And we need to do that part of that process. We need to do our job. Well and seriously and devotedly and be serious to our students who are going to go on and change the world.
0: Yeah, I was just thinking that David, because we are we are training students to go into the world to to address and to try to impact change and, and, and who care about praxis. So it's both projects are so relevant for us. Thank you both.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I just wanna, uh, we're gonna turn to a, a, a couple of questions. We've got time. Um, I just wanna underscore something that I think is really obvious, but I think it's important to name, which is that the scholarship that, um, Catherine, you, that has been the heart of this conversation, and frankly, that, that informs this entire series, is that um, it is uh, embedded in normative prescriptions of assumption that uh, inequality is 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 is, is problematic, is wrong, and that there's some hope for transforming these um, social systems, and that that I just want to be clear about it because the other um, I think uh, fog that can happen in the academy is that there's something neutral about our work, and and it's not neutral. Uh, no work is no academic or educational work is ever neutral, and I think naming naming the lens through which we do that work and the judgments we make and the heart of the of the the foundation of those judgments, I think, is really, really important, and your, in your book, does that so powerfully. Um, so, so thank you. I'm going to turn to um, partly because we have a uh, hundreds of people from across the world uh, representing a, a variety of different religious uh, perspectives, traditions. So I'm going to turn to John Templeton's um, question: How does the heathen binary show up in other world religions? obviously the major religions Islam comes to mind, but uh, potentially other more local religious traditions with respect to Islam in particular, I wonder how race factors into this binary. That it's a complicated question, I know I know, uh, to put to both of you, but can you help us with the kind of implications around this perspective of binary and heathen and its impact on the way we think about and have shaped other quote unquote world religions, I think would be really helpful. Uh, to
2: hear your thoughts on that Can I
3: go Catherine um go for it <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'll just it, it's a it's a terrific question and and uh, partly this will be a cop out that you know part of what it means to be a historian is to be trained in particular geographical context and uh and so i I, I would be hesitant to speak too confidently about things beyond my expertise um. But I will note that that one of the distinguishing features of the Christian conversation about human difference is its universalizing frame, uh, which means that it it is uh, by its own um, remit obligated to convert the world. Uh, And what that means is that those that are on the converted side of that division um, have a particular relationship to those who are, to use Catherine's version of the kind of modernized phrasing of heathenism, the unreached. Um, And so any cosmology that is universalizing and conversionary to that extent is going to, I think, share similar conceptual patterns to you know uh, we're not reducing these things to to their similarities but um, but to the extent that universalizing tendencies drive some of this, where you find that universalizing you're likely to find some of this same kind of dynamic. What we see in many other cultures and many other religious traditions is a deeply particularizing view uh, of humanity. which uh, accepts that other people have other origin stories and other people have other cultural frames, and there isn't the same universalizing expectation. And I think that particular understanding of of humanity comes with very different implications with regard to a kind of binary conception of the world.
3: Yeah, I would um, the only thing I would add to that is that the the book is, By necessity, limited in scope, and so there's a lot that it doesn't cover. And um, and I I hope that you know people ask these questions and explore these questions outside of the framework that I was looking at, which is primarily about the American history of um, of thinking in these binary terms. And that's not at all to say that people in other contexts don't always don't don't also you know tend to think um, in binary terms as well, right? So I think that I. I very much welcome other scholarship on those subjects. OK, great.
1: We have time for maybe for, for one more question, Melissa. Go ahead. And, but, but the answer will have to be uh, very short. Okay. <laughs> because we're almost against time.
0: OK. So this question comes from Demetrius Nelson. Would you say that Protestant or Catholicism used heathen labeling to warrant enslavement? Would you say that there were certain Denominations within the Protestant faith that used heathen labeling more because it helped to advance the underlying white supremacy savior,
3: saviorism. So that's a really interesting question. Um, I so I don't know that I would say that in my research I encountered you know particular denominations using the term more than other denominations, but. I definitely encountered Protestants using the term against Catholics and Catholics using the term against Protestants. Um, And so this, again, speaks to kind of the elasticity of the concept where it could be used to label anyone whose way of being religious did not align with one's own. You know, um, so Protestants, for instance, um, claimed that Catholics were not sufficiently separated from the Roman pagan past. And so that then the people that they evangelized uh, also had not fully separated from a kind of pagan past, and that therefore, you know, Catholics were still practicing certain things that to Protestants seemed heathen, and so they they needed to be converted as well. So it becomes this, you know, polemicized term that can be really used uh, in multiple contexts. Great. Well,
1: with with that, we are going to have to close. There are so many more excellent questions and so much more to say, but uh, we can't thank you enough, uh, professors uh, Holland and Lum, a really incredible conversation, illuminating on so many so many spheres. Um, and really, again, that, that uh, the heart of really what it means to ask self-reflective questions, not only of our own discipline, but uh, self-reflective questions that then open up pathways to challenge those the persistence of those binaries I think is a really critical uh, uh, gift that you've given us to to move forward so I want to thank you both again for this really rich conversation really want to thank our colleagues behind the scenes who have made this um, whole series possible uh, there are legions of them and we couldn't be doing this without you and I want to thank all of you who have joined us tonight um, thank you for your Presence, for your, for your patience for your excellent questions. I hope uh, that you will uh, ponder and talk with others about what you've heard here, knowing that some of it is very, maybe difficult and disturbing to hear, uh, certainly hopefully illuminating, but please do make sure to share your reflections with others as you ponder the implications of these, of these conversations. And please do uh, join us next week as we continue our series on February 13th, with Professor Dan McCannon, who will be speaking on Harvard Divinity School and Slavery Family Stories. Thank you again for being with us, and we look forward to seeing you next week.
0: Good night. Sponsors Religion and Public Life, the HDS Office of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging, the Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery Initiative, Harvard X.
3: Copyright 2023, President and Fellows of Harvard College.